Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul, as his custom was, went into them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, This Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and a great multitude of the devout Jews and not a few of the leading women joined Paul and Silas. But the Jews who were not persuaded, becoming envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace and gathering a mob set all of the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Jason has harbored them. And these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. And they troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they had heard these things. So when they had taken security, that's money, from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Now, this is the second missionary journey of Paul the Apostle and the team of people that he has with him. In chapter 16, we saw how that Paul and his team enter Europe. For the first time, the gospel penetrates Europe. Now, just keep in mind that this isn't a casual stroll they are having here. And the kind of transportation in those days was either on foot or by boat. So you can kind of sympathize with these guys uh, just in this chapter, verse 1 of chapter 17, it says, when they had passed through Amphipolis. That's a 33-mile walk. And then through Apollonia. That's a 30-mile walk. And then down to Thessalonica is 37 more miles. So they had to walk 100 miles by foot. You know, those guys were probably in great shape. They didn't need health spas back then. You just walk everywhere. And also they took boats. They would get from one port, they'd get a ticket, they'd pay the fare, and they would take sometimes months, depending on how the weather was and where they had to port up, to get from one place to the next. But Paul was committed to preach the gospel in all of the corners of the earth as Jesus Christ has given him that commission. Now this is a revolutionary crossing because the gospel going into Europe meant that many of your ancestors heard the gospel. And your ancestors, in hearing the gospel, came to know Christ and passed it on to their children and evangelized others, and eventually the gospel came to the United States of America. And our forefathers populated this country, and now we've been able to send out people to other parts of the world. So this is a strategic point of ministry. When Paul received the vision, come over to Macedonia and help us. It was a strategic turning point for the gospel to get into the European continent. When they got to Macedonia and came to Philippi, they started out small. Just a few women were meeting at the riverbank, and yet a small church developed, the church at Philippi. And if you've read the letter to the Philippians, you remember that the church at Philippi was one of the closest churches to the heart of Paul. They supported him financially when no, no one else did or could. They sent him out on his ministry. They kept in close contact with him. And Paul said that he loved them deeply. Over and over again in that epistle, he committed his love to them. And so it developed a relationship of, very, of closeness developed with these people. And he continues his journeys now, the second missionary journey, through Amphipolis, verse 1 and Apollonia, and then Thessalonica. When Paul went on his journeys, he took the freeway. He didn't take the back road. He always took the main road. And there was a road that went from the Adriatic Sea to the Mideast called the Via Ignatia. It was the Roman road that the army traveled on. It was very well traveled by the army and by people in professions and trades. And that's always the perfect place to get the gospel out. Though you need it on the back roads, Paul's thought was, if I can get the gospel circulating in the main end roads of the empire, it has a better chance of spreading. 
And so if you look at a map and see all of his little places where he traveled and where the gospel started, it was always in a population base like this. Uh, Thessalonica is the place where he stopped. We don't know what happened in the other two cities. Nothing is really shared much about it, except that he passed through there. But Thessalonica was a seaport, although it was inland. You say, how could that be? Well, it could be because there were three rivers that flowed from Thessalonica out into the ocean, and so it was a trade city. If you were interested in history, it was rebuilt by Cassander in about 315 B.C. Now, let me give you a little background of the empire. Alexander the Great took over the rulership of the known world from the Medes and the Persians. And he started when he was about 19 or 20 years old. And by the time he was 31, he conquered the entire known world. When he was 31, almost 32, he sat in Babylon and wept because there were no more kingdoms that he knew of that he could conquer. He was a type A personality, a real aggressive go-getter. He died at age 32, drunk in Babylon from pneumonia and alcoholism. When he died, and before he died, actually, people said, well, if you die, who shall the kingdom go to? He said, give it to the strong. And so they passed it on to his four generals, and the four generals divided up his empire into four sections. And wars between them and their offspring went on for years. Well, the four generals were, first of all, Ptolemy. He took northern Africa and especially Egypt. Seleucus took Mesopotamia and Syria. Lysimachus took Asia Minor and Thrace, and Cassander took Greece and Macedonia. And it was this Cassander, when the empire split up, who renamed this city Thessalonica. It used to be called Therma because of the thermal water springs that grew around the city. and People would go there to be refreshed. He renamed it after Alexander's stepsister, Thessalonica. And he established his empire there until the Romans took it over some years later. It says that Paul, as his custom was, verse 2, went into them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scripture. I think it's fascinating that Paul only spent three weeks in this city. Because in that three-week period of time, he laid terrific doctrinal groundwork. He wasted no time. He didn't fluff them up or get them into just emotional moods. He taught them the Scripture. And during these three weeks, he taught them even this doctrine of the rapture of the church and the second coming of Jesus Christ. You say, how do you know that? Because I've read the book of 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians. After three weeks, he left. And when he was away, he wrote a letter back to them, and he makes reference to the many doctrines that he taught them in this three-week period of time, one being the rapture of the church, and second, the second coming of Jesus Christ, the Antichrist, and all the things that we've spoken about in the series Sunday morning in Matthew 24, some weeks ago. So, in three weeks' period of time, he did quite a job. Now, I want you to notice, in verse 2 and 3, that's really what we're going to zero in on tonight. Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and demonstrating that Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, saying, This Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. Now it says that it was his custom to go into the synagogue on the Sabbath. It was his habit. It was something that he always did. In fact, the word could be translated his habitual manner. This manner of going to the synagogue to worship was the same custom that Jesus had. I'm going to read another scripture to you in the Gospel of Luke. Let me read it to you. So Jesus came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah, and he read from the scroll of Isaiah in the synagogue. It was Paul's custom to go to the synagogue every Sabbath. It was Jesus' custom to go to the synagogue every Sabbath. And then we read in the book of Acts, the early church devoted themselves to the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. It says they met every Sabbath in the temple, they met in the synagogues, they met from house to house. It became the habit of Christians 
to meet together regularly in times of fellowship. The early church was never sporadic. They were devoted. They were committed to one another. They looked at the Sabbath or at fellowship times as special holy events. And they thought that getting together with one another and hearing the Word of God was of utmost importance. And I bring that up because it should be second nature to the Christian to want to hang out with other Christians. It should be second nature to want to fellowship, to want to come to church and be fed the Word of God. Now, when I grew up, I hated church. When my parents said it's church time, it was like, oh man, grit your teeth, get through it and get out of there. I would daydream. I would plan my day in church. I'd plan my week sometimes. It was boring to me. I didn't feel comfortable there. I had another crowd of people that I felt more comfortable with than church people. When foreigners live in a foreign country, they are often intimidated to get close to the people of the culture that they are trying to get into. And oftentimes you will see foreigners, immigrants, get together with other people from their culture. If you go to Southern California, there are whole sections of Vietnamese people. They would rather be together in an environment that reminds them of home. If you go to Jerusalem, there's German colony where Germans have immigrated and they hang out together. There's a British colony. There's an American colony where groups of people feel closer with citizens from their other country. Now, how about you? Do you feel comfortable being around God's people? Or when you are, do you feel like there's another crowd you'd rather be with? That will give you an indication if you are a citizen of heaven or just an earthbound citizen by where you feel comfortable spending your time. That doesn't mean you're supposed to feel uncomfortable being with other people in the world necessarily, but you're more uncomfortable in their crowd than you should be with Christians. Now, I've seen that change happen in my life. Before I was a Christian, I was nervous being around them. I was intimidated by them. They spoke as if God was really alive. And they just talked to Him this morning. Like they were buddies with them, and it just bothered me because I didn't have that experience. I never forget the first time I went to what became my home church in California, Calvary Chapel of Costa Mesa. At that time, it was a big tent. They didn't have a building built. But we met in a tent until the building was built. And I went into the tent, and I expected church, like what I grew up with. Because there were no chairs... All the chairs were taken. I had to sit on the floor. And I found that there were lots of people sitting on the floor who looked as if they liked being there. They had smiles on their faces. And I thought, God, are they on drugs or what? They actually like this place. And then the singing started and the worship started. And I watched people raising their hands up to the Lord. And I felt really awkward being there. Because these people loved God and I wasn't a citizen of their country yet. I was a citizen of earth only. And I could try to play the religious game as much as I wanted to, but I didn't feel comfortable being around them. A couple weeks after that, I hadn't made a commitment to Christ, but I was up close to my house and I was hitchhiking and uh, a Volkswagen bus pulled over. And the guys looked pretty safe. Now keep in mind, I'm just out of high school. And the people driving an old beat-up Volkswagen bus, that's pretty safe. Real long hair, beards, blue jeans. All right, safe. They're under 30. I can trust them. They picked me up, and I figured, you know, they're going to say, you want a joint or something like that? But they said, do you know Jesus? And I said, pardon me? What do you mean, do I know Jesus? You talk like he's a buddy of yours or something. What are all these people doing? And they shared the gospel. I felt so intimidated. I wanted to get out of the van. In fact, miles before my stop, I said, this is where I need to get off, right here. Thank you. Boom, and I split. I didn't feel comfortable. When I became a Christian, my eyes were opened. And those people became my brothers and sisters. And there was a camaraderie and a fellowship and a communion with them. Then I felt more at home among them and I felt more alien with other people. Friends that I grew up with, I felt alienated from. Have you ever had that experience? 
You think, I've grown up with this person, but I feel so estranged. I went back to the friends that I had in high school. They were very close. We grew up together. I went back to my high school, in fact, and I played a Christian concert there where some of my friends were at, and I felt like an alien from outer space. I didn't fit in that crowd. When Paul wrote his epistle to the Philippians, he alluded to this when he said, Our citizenship is in heaven, from which we eagerly await our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Paul lived by that. As a citizen, he had a custom. And the citizenship of his country demanded the custom of being together with other citizens. And fellowship with other Christians is so essential. If you look at it as a duty, oh, Bible study, church... Christians, you're probably not a citizen. You're probably a foreigner. And you probably need to be born again and have Jesus change your perspective and cleanse you of your sins and admit you into heavenly fellowship with Him. And then you'll look around and think, I can't wait to come to church. I can't wait to get into the Word. I can't wait to read my Bible in the morning. I can't wait to meet other believers in Christ. I'll be filled and I'll fellowship with them and I'll grow as I'm around them. But if it's hard for you to be around them, you're probably not a citizen. And then Paul, it says, it goes on in verse 2. He went into them for three Sabbaths and he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. In the next few verses, I want to talk about our Christian faith from this perspective. First of all, the Christian faith is reasonable. He reasoned with them from the Scriptures. And then the next verse says, He explained and demonstrated that Christ had to suffer, rise again from the dead, saying, "This Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. After I was saved, I started getting grounded in the Word of God. I went to Bible study. I went through the book of Romans. I took notes. I had a good foundation of what to believe. And then I went to college. And in college, I was challenged. People asked me questions I couldn't answer, and I didn't know why I believed what I believed. I knew what I believed. But when people put me into a corner, I could not reason with them from the Scripture. I was not adept at wielding the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. I would just get emotional with them. I'd say, look, I believe what I believe, and you believe what you believe, okay? Which is a cop-out. But that was my answer. It was an emotional response. It was not a reasoned response. And I've decided to spend time here tonight because to me this is close to my heart. That we learn how to answer every man. In fact, Peter said, but in your hearts... Set Christ apart as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give reason for the hope that you have. But then do this with gentleness and respect. You live in a reasonable society for the most part. However, there are a lot of skeptics out there who worship skepticism. That's their God. As much as you worship Jesus Christ, they love doubt. And even when confronted with reason, they turn from it. You've probably noticed that if you've shared the gospel reasonably with anyone. There comes a point where they just stop reasoning, they turn off their brain, they get emotional about what they believe. I think of Thomas. Thomas was a real skeptic. And I think the Lord didn't mind that. But there came a point when Thomas was... Confronted with the truth, he followed Jesus for three and a half years. He didn't believe in his resurrection. And when Jesus finally said, "Uh, Peter, put your finger in these hands. Here's proof for you. You want proof? Here it is. Thomas backed down. Thomas said, my Lord and my God. Did I say Peter? Okay. My brain is floating around in the ozone, but it comes back from time to time. And I caught that one. But the Bible says that we're to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. I had a guy come up to me one time. In fact, it was in California when I was guest speaking out there. And um, I don't know what his trip was, but he was against Christians' thinking, basically. You know, he talked about God saving your soul and saving your heart. And some of these people who try to make Christianity reasonable and logical, they're falling to the spirit of the world. Excuse me? 
Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. You don't have to put your brain on the shelf when you come in church. God gave you a mind to think with. And that which is theological is often logical. Not always. Because there's a lot about God you don't understand and you have to just say, I commit that to you. I don't understand it. But it's possible to reason with people from the Scripture, explaining and demonstrating that Jesus is the very Christ. There are people who talk about Christianity as if it is the most unreasonable thing to believe in. It's wish fulfillment. They'll pat you on the back and they'll say, listen, that's a nice little experience that you've had. I'm so happy that your life is so fulfilled now. We're tickled pink for you. But then they'll go away and they'll explain it as this person had a deep need and it was a wish fulfillment. It was a, a, a response to a condition that has gone on in his life and it's just a conditioned response and now he says he's fulfilled. That was a thinking that came about in the 1800s that has mushroomed today. And I'm going to get a little technical tonight and talk about this and I uh, hope uh, uh, you'll be able to follow along. I'm sure you will be because this is a smart group, a reasonable group. But uh, there was a man by the name of Ludwig Feuerbach. In the 1800s, he wrote a book called The Essence of Christianity. The book influenced Karl Marx and other people who turned to evolution. And in the book, The Essence of Christianity, he basically said that what Christians do is visualize their own wishes and desires of God, project that desire out from themselves, and then worship it. And so God is simply a concept like John Lennon wrote about in his song. God is this concept, this projected wish that people worship. It's because they have a desire to live forever. And they want to trust someone who can guarantee their survival. In fact, what he said was this. Quote, I wish to exist. I wish to be immortal. I wish for God to guarantee this. Therefore, because I wish it to be true, I project that wish and I worship it. That statement took fire and grabbed the hearts of lots of quote-unquote thinkers of his time. And a lot of people just shoved Christianity aside. It's just wish fulfillment. That makes perfect sense. Until some years later, someone decided to challenge his book, another uh, thinker, called uh, Edvard von Hartmann. These are all German names. And he wrote a book, and he said, one of his quotes, quote, Professor Feuerbach's entire thesis rests upon a logical fallacy. He maintains that the wish to believe is proof that there is no God. And that's true. That's a logical fallacy. He's saying that people wish something to happen. They wish there's a God. Therefore, there's no God. He says that's stupid, basically, in his nice German way of saying things. He maintains that the wish to believe in God is proof that there is no God. Let us demonstrate by analogy how fallacious this is. Here's his example. I am in a bed of suffering spending a night of agonizing pain. I wish and desire earnestly that dawn will come. The fact that I desire the dawn to come is not proof that dawn will not come. Think it through. It's brilliant. He dismantles his argument logically, reasonably. He's saying that here's a guy who says, if you wish something to be true, it proves that it couldn't happen. He says, okay, let me, let me speak in your terms. I'm suffering in a night of pain. I'm agonizing in my body. I say, I wish morning would come. Because I wish morning to come, does that mean it'll never happen? He says, that's the premise that this guy wrote his book on, and he's entirely wrong. Well, his book caught fire, and a lot of people said, well, I guess he wasn't so smart after all. But it's possible. You don't have to be a great intellect, but just think through things to reason about God reason about creation with people who are against it. Now, it's reasonable for a few reasons. Number one, Christian truth is objective truth. That is, it rests upon not just your wish fulfillment, not just an emotional experience you've had. Oh, I accepted Jesus in my heart and I'm changed. That's good and that's true. But that's not objective enough. 
you know, a Buddhist could come along and say, I accepted Buddha and my life changed. I tried this out one time. I was speaking to a Sikh down by the university. You know, they have the turbans on their head. And I was talking about how Jesus Christ fulfilled my life and try Jesus, ask him into your heart to forgive your sins. And it's the greatest thing. And he smiled at me with a tender smile. He said, that's the experience I've had as a Sikh. On the path that I have traveled and the journey that I have sought, I have such ultimate peace and fulfillment. Well, you've got two contradicting experiences. And you could argue end on end for eternity. But Christianity is tied to something objective. The person of Jesus Christ, His claims, and the proof of His claims, like His resurrection from the dead. Now, a lot of people will throw Christianity out. They'll say it's not reasonable. But they won't think through the claims and the proofs of the claims of Christ. I've got a whole section in my library at home on this kind of stuff. I love reading about this kind of stuff because I'm often confronted with it as I talk to different people. One of my favorite little books that I just like to peruse, a thin little paperback, is a book by a British journalist called Frank Morrison. He was certain that Christians were just a bunch of airheads. Unreasonable. That it was just an emotional experience, and he said, you know, give me enough time and I can completely dismantle the Christian faith. Well, he went on his search, and he wrote his book called Who Moved the Stone? He became a Christian, by the way. The first chapter of his book was entitled The Book That Refused to Be Written. I'm not going to read it off to you, but I want to read an excerpt from it. He said, when I was a very young man, I first began seriously to study the life of Christ. And I did so with a very definite feeling that if I may put it so, his history rested upon very insecure foundations. It was about this time, more for the sake of my own peace of mind than for publication, that I conceived the idea of writing a short monograph on what seemed to me to be supremely important and critical phase of the life of Christ, the last seven days. Though later I came to see that the days immediately succeeding the crucifixion were quite as crucial. The title I chose was Jesus, the Last Phase. I took the seven last days of the life of Christ for three reasons. One, the period seemed remarkably free from the miraculous element that on scientific grounds I held suspect. Two, all of the gospel writers devoted much space to this period and in the main were strikingly in agreement. And three, the trial and execution of Jesus was a reverberating historical event attested to indirectly by a thousand political consequences and by a vast literature that grew out from them. Such, briefly, was the purpose of the book that I had planned. I wanted to take this last phase of the life of Jesus with all of its quick, pulsating drama, its sharp, clear-cut background of antiquity, its tremendous psychological and human interest, to strip it of its overgrowth of primitive beliefs and dogmatic suppositions, and to see this supremely great person as he really was. I will only say that it effected a revolution in my thought. Things emerged from that old world story that I previously should have thought impossible. Slowly but very definitely, the conviction grew that the drama of those unforgettable weeks of human history was stranger and deeper than it seemed. It was the strangeness of many notable things in the story that first arrested and held my interest. It was only later that the irresistible logic of their meaning came into my view. I want to try in the remaining chapters of this book to explain why that other venture never came to port and what were the hidden rocks on which it foundered and how I landed on, to me, an unexpected shore. And so he wrote the book called Who Moved the Stone? The search of his research that caused him to believe in Jesus Christ. But he came to the conclusion, I was confronted with logic, reason, that I could place my mind, not that I could understand the unknowable and comprehensible God, but there was enough there that demonstrated it's reasonable. 
And so Paul reasoned with them. He explained, which means he opened up the text. He laid it out very plainly. He demonstrated, that is, he brought proofs alongside of. That's what the word means. Proving that Jesus Christ is who he said he was. And so Christianity is rational because it's tied to objective truth. And number two, the universal nature of the Christian experiences. There are others, but let's just talk about that. When you accepted Jesus Christ, if I were to say, let's stand up and spend 10 minutes, give me your testimony. There would be a common thread between all of us. There would be the recognition that you were a sinner. You needed help. There would be the crying out to God. There would be, my eyes were opened, I could see clearly. I experienced the alleviation of guilt. My sins were cleansed. I entered into this new... It would be, although you would have different circumstances, very unique in your testimony, there'd be a common thread, a universal experience. You could go to China. You could go to Germany. You could go to the American Indians. Anyone who's accepted Christ, no matter what the culture, what the background, what the intellect, what the education, there'd be a common thread of universal experience. That's important. When anyone comes up to you and says, I've had a great experience, and they share it with you, it's not fair to automatically discount that. You must ask yourself, well, that's great. That's a good experience. Well, how do I know it's true? Is it tied, your experience, to anything other than your experience, something that's objective? And Christianity is. See, I'll give you a ludicrous example. I'm good at those. You walk up to someone and they say, I have found the meaning of life. I found the answer to the deep quest of why I exist. I have total fulfillment. Really? What's the answer? Well, I wear a banana peel on my head five days a week. Really? That's interesting. I don't want to discount your philosophy because maybe it's true. How can I know? Well, one of the ways you can know is go around the world and see if there are anyone else with banana peels on their head that have the same experience of fulfillment and enjoyment and satisfaction, knowing the deep secrets of life. If you only find that one guy, and it's not a universal thread that can transcend culture, intellect, and all of those barriers we mentioned, it's just a subjective experience that has no rational base. Paul was able to reason with these Jewish fellows in the synagogue, and the result is many of them came to know Christ. Secondly, Christianity is a solid foundation. Notice what he reasoned from. Not his own inventions. It was something that was based deeper. It says in that same verse, Paul, as his custom was, went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scripture. He knew the Bible. And he knew that if you just let the Word of God out, if you know it and you release it, Powerful things can happen, and it's reasonable to believe. It's reasonable to believe. You know, the open Bible in the hands of a person who has a childlike faith in Jesus Christ is very powerful. Don't discount that. Well, I'm not a great... So what? Know the Bible and present it and reason from the Scripture, and your life will be powerful. It's important these days because many preachers, seminaries... Higher institutions of learning have departed from the Word of God. They've invented their own philosophies and they preach from their own philosophies. They've lost power. There's no change in that. But an open Bible in the hands of a common, average person who loves God and is willing to release the Word of God, there's power. God's Word won't return void. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. It's able to cut between the heart, the soul, the spirit and discern the thoughts and the intents of the heart, the Scripture says. I read a quote from a preacher. I couldn't believe it. The preacher boasted in the fact that he finally learned to preach without using the Bible. He said, listen, I've preached for a long time and i found out that people are tired of hearing, the Bible says this, the Bible says this, turn to this and turn to that. And so, instead of saying what the Bible says, I say things in my own way, in my own words, from my own heart, and people accept it. Of course people accept it. It says in the last days, men will have itchy ears. They'll want to be entertained. They won't want the meat of the Word. They'll get tired of simple truth that can transform their lives. 
They'll want kind of a television mentality. Entertain me. It's give me something that makes me just feel good. I don't want to change. And that's often the case. But that's not a boast at all. I think that's a horrible admission of how the church has fallen from that. Every time Paul traveled, he carried a message from heaven. He didn't have a message or he didn't reason from just his own background. He reasoned from the scriptures. Guy in the church came up to me not long ago, precious brother. He said, you know, Skip, it was a Sunday morning. It was a, a, a gal. And she said, my husband and I were sitting behind another couple. We were toward the back of the church. And as you were turning to one scripture and turning to another scripture, the husband turned to his wife and said almost in, in disbelief, my goodness, he believes it literally. What a compliment. It's right, I believe it literally. It's not a fairy tale. Why preach from it if it's not true? There's power in the Word of God, and Paul always used that in his life. Now, this is the base that Christianity is attacked. You reason because it's reasonable, and you reason from the Scriptures. And that's where Christianity is attacked. People will tell you, yeah, well, how do you know the Bible's true? I mean, it was passed on by zealous monks. They could have changed it. They made a lot of mistakes. You can't expect it to be free of errors. They were good, well-meaning people, but they made lots of mistakes. You cannot believe the texts of the New Testament. That's totally false. First of all, there is accuracy in transmission. We have, not we personally as a church, but the Christian world, there are over 5,500 texts upon which the New Testament is based. Even if we didn't have any of those ancient manuscripts, within 250 years from the time of Christ, you could recreate the New Testament without any of the manuscripts from just the citations of the New Testament by the early church fathers. Some 86,000 citations. You could put the whole New Testament together. There are more evidences, manuscript-wise, of the New Testament than any other document any other ancient document. Look at the writings of Homer and Plato, Iliad, the Odyssey, some of the ancient classics. Some of them have one or two or five manuscripts that disagree with each other greatly. And yet they're never put in dispute, are they? Just the Bible's always put, there's no evidence for this, it's all fake. Listen, if the Bible were secular literature, no one would gripe. Because it is incredible the amount of evidence for it. Secondly, it's reliable historically. If you've ever had a chance to go to Israel, you've appreciated this. If you ever get a chance to go to Israel, you'll blow your mind to see how many archaeological digs there are that point to the accuracy of the Scripture. Classic example. The Scripture says that there was a man that was taken at the pool of Bethesda and healed in John's Gospels. The Scripture said it had five porches. And for years, people laughed at that. Oh, John must have made that up. Because there's no record in any historical record. or We can't find it around Jerusalem. There's no such thing. It's just a figment of his imagination. He put it there. Until they started digging by the church of St. Anne. Over by Stephen's Gate. And you dig down, and there's a huge reservoir where the pool was filled from the outside, and there were five porches that are still intact today, some of them. And they discovered the exact place. And that happened time and time again. In fact, one of the greatest archaeologists in the Mideast was Nelson Gluick. He was a Jewish archaeologist. And he wrote, quote, No archaeological discovery has ever contradicted a biblical reference. I assert that the almost incredibly accurate historical memory of the Bible, and particularly so when it is fortified by archaeological fact. Thirdly, the Bible is reliable because of its unified message. If you were to take medical books, this is a classic Josh McDowell thing. If you took medical books written over a thousand year period, let's say you took 50 of them, 50 medical texts from different cultures, different languages, over a thousand year period of time and tried to treat somebody with the information gleaned out of all those sources, what would the chances of survival be? Pretty poor. Because they would contradict. 
Yet the Bible was written over a 1,500-year time span, 66 separate documents written at different times by different people, different walks of life, three different continents, different languages, speaking about controversial subjects like the meaning of life, the origin of life, salvation, the origin of evil. You'd expect a chaotic mess, but there's an incredible cohesion because they're authored by one, which is the Holy Spirit. There's only one way to explain that. There's an incredible cohesion because there's a unified message. And then fourthly, because of prophecy. We don't have time to get into it, but we've gotten into it many times. One of God's calling cards, His business cards, is prophecy. He can predict things before they happen. In fact, God says, I'm going to predict things before they happen so that when they happen in such graphic detail, you won't be uh, uh, standing in the dark saying, what happened? You'll know that it's because I spoke it. And I spoke about it in advance. And then, the Christian message has a powerful effect. It's reasonable. It has a solid foundation in the Word of God. And it has powerful results when it's simply reasonably shared. He said, "This Jesus who I preach to you is the Christ. Verse 4, Some of them were persuaded. And a great multitude of devout Jews and not a few of the leading women joined Paul and Silas. The reasonable, from the Word of God, approach of the Gospel, and many were persuaded. However, look at verse 5. But the Jews who were not persuaded. You see, that's always the effect of the Gospel. Some believe, some don't. Some are persuaded, some are not persuaded. In fact, probably most are not persuaded, and a few are persuaded. But it's powerful. And I like it when the gospel has those kind of results. What I don't like to see is people who are just kind of fence walkers and in the middle for a long period of time. Well, I think I'm a Christian. I don't know if I'm a Christian. Well, I'm sort of a Christian. I kind of believe. I kind of don't. I like it when people say, I'm a believer and I trust it, or I'm not a believer. Man, get away. That's how Jesus was. I didn't come to bring peace. I came to divide. You're either for me or you're against me. You either gather or you scatter. And any time anyone tried to walk the fence with Jesus, he wouldn't let him get away with it. Recently, after years of putting our radio show on Christian radio, and we don't do it for evangelism, it's to the Christian community. It's an outreach to their inreach. But we have decided to put our, what we call God spots, on secular radio stations. Some of you heard them around town. They're like 30-second to 45-second, even a minute, what we call God spots, where we have a kind of a hard-hitting gospel message. Uh, you can't cover it all, but you might cover a topic with a little grabber, and there's a music bed to it, and then it fades out. And if you have more, want more information, call this number. They've been real fun to do. And every time we do them, we get two basic responses. People who call and go, that's great! I love it! Keep going for it! There are people who call irate. And we like that too. That's all right. Because basically the unbeliever is saying, excuse me, you're on my turf. And you're preaching your gospel on my turf and I'm offended by it. Well, that's all right. We're not trying to offend you, but that's the result of the gospel. It brings division. And you can expect that. But it might plant a seed in the heart at the same time. And that person might be offended at first, but think about it, and the Holy Spirit might use it to turn his life to Jesus. So you ought to pray for those spots as they go out on the radio all over this city in the next few months. But we did another spot recently to counteract that, trying to use reason again. We said, you know, we've had some complaints over some of these radio stations about these God spots that we shouldn't be able to preach the gospel over the air. Isn't it interesting that on this radio station you're allowed to talk about homosexuality, Drugs, alcohol, partying, and all we name the list. But you mention the gospel and people get irate. And though we talk about free speech and people's rights, and we don't have a right, and so we hope that the gospel will get out. But look at verse 6. When they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, These who have turned the world upside down. Ah, one of my all-time favorite verses. These who have turned the world upside down 
have come here too. Jason has harbored them, and they're all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there's another king named Jesus. And they trouble the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. So when they had taken security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. I love that. Their reaction to Christians preaching the gospel is they're turning the world upside down. They're rocking the apple cart. That stuff belongs in the church, not in the streets. Actually, they were turning the world right side up. It was already upside down to begin with, if I were to correct their vocabulary. But you see, when the gospel first penetrated the Roman Empire, it had tumultuous results. It penetrated. It was hard-hitting. The world was turned upside down. It created a revolution. It really did. And people were really persecuted back then. Folks, if you want a cause, if you're looking for a cause to get behind, if you're looking for something to stand up for, to pick it for, to march for, let it be the gospel. You know what? We call the United States a Christian country. That's baloney. It's hypocrisy. It's all pretense. We push every other cause except the gospel. And then we say we're preaching the gospel. Paul went to these towns and preached Jesus crucified, risen from the dead, able to change your life. That ought to be the message of the Christians. And that will turn the world upside down. It'll upset a few, but some will be persuaded. And when you're in heaven with them, they'll thank you that you upset their apple cart for a little while. And then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away at night to Berea. When they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. I love this too. These were more fair-minded or noble than those of Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the Scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. They were teachable, but they searched. That's an important combination. Because if you are teachable without searching the Scripture, you'll be deceived. You just believe anybody. Okay, man, I'm open. Tell me. Oh, great. False doctor. Hey, it's all right. I'm open. If you don't search the Scripture, you'll go astray. However, if you search the Scriptures without being teachable, you'll be a Pharisee. Jesus told the Pharisees, you search the Scriptures because in them you think you have eternal life, but they testify of me. You've missed the boat. So these people listen. They were teachable. They were open. Yeah, I love it. They thought, you know, I'm going to find out if Paul's right. I'll search the Scriptures. Therefore, many of them believed, and also not a few of the Greeks, prominent women as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the Word of God was being preached by Paul at Berea, they came there also to stir up the crowds, and immediately the brethren sent Paul away to go to the sea. Both Paul or both Silas and Timothy remained there. And those who conducted Paul brought him to Athens, and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him, with all speed they departed. I want you to notice that in both of these cases, in Thessalonica and Berea, the speaker of the Word of God, Paul, and the people who received the Word of God never took it lightly, but they took it very seriously. Paul argued out of the Scriptures, right? And the people in Berea searched the Scriptures as their basis to see if the guy was right. What a good combination. A guy using the Bible to preach from and to tell truth from and to reason from and the people who listen to it using the Bible to check it. Can't go wrong that way. You have a double stop, a double check. Now I admit to you something in all of this speech tonight, this message, there's a lot of the Bible I don't understand. So much of it is reasonable. And we're to love the Lord our God with all of our mind, heart, soul, and strength. But there are so many walls I come up to and think, that something about your character and nature, God, is just unfathomable for me. And it's okay. I can handle that. I don't need to figure you out in everything. If you could figure all there is to know about God, you'd be Him. But you're not. You're His creation. Don't expect to know it all. But don't be encumbered by those little problems that you can't understand as well. Search them out, and if you can't grapple with them, don't let it ruin you. There's a story about a preacher, a clergyman, who was taking a train ride down along the Hudson River. And so he went into a dining car and had a seat, and in came an atheist. 
Notice that the clergyman had a collar, and the atheist smiled and said, You're a clergyman, right? She said, Yes, I'm a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The atheist said, And I suppose you believe the Bible is true. The clergyman said, Yes, sir, I believe the Bible is the inspired word of God, inerrant and infallible. Well, can you explain everything in the Bible? Or are there any things that you don't understand? Oh, there's a great number of things I can't explain and don't understand. And so the atheist smiled, thought, got him cornered. He said, well, what do you do then with them? You don't understand them. Doesn't that bother you? He said, well, sir. And he happened to be in the dining car eating fish, and the fish happened to be Hudson, um, a, a Hudson fish that was known for its meatiness, but it was very bony. A guy's eating his fish, didn't really look up until he finished and laid the bones aside. And he said, I do with those problems in the Word of God what I'm doing with this fish. I eat the meat and I am filled. And I leave the bones for some other fool to choke on. They don't bother me. There's a lot of things in my reading that I just say, I can't figure that out. I'll try, I'll pray, I'll search, and then I'll finally go, hey, you're God. There's enough here to convince me you are who you said you are. I've seen the changes in my life. And all of those changes and all of the experiences that I have with God are tied to something outside of that that's very objective, very real, very provable, very reasonable. And I can rest with a satisfied mind. Heavenly Father, we thank You that Your Word is powerful not just reasonable, it's powerful. It changes lives. How grateful we are for the changes in our own. As you are committed to those changes, Lord, I pray that we might be as well. Pray that we will not take the word for granted, that we would be committed to having the custom of constant fellowship with other believers. And I pray, Father, tonight if there are those who are not citizens of the kingdom of heaven that they'd have the guts enough to admit it and to turn their lives over to you tonight. In Jesus' name, amen.